This is the Ed Milet Show. Welcome back to Max Out, everybody. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because um, this man has maxed out many areas of his life. But today we're probably going to focus most on the movie industry because he's one of the top movie producers in the world right now. But he's also maxed out a great family. He's an entrepreneur. He's an incredible communicator, and he's becoming a good friend of mine. And so I'm very excited. You've seen movies like Skyscraper, Hercules, Rampage, San Andreas. The list could go on and on. But I actually kind of like some of the indie stuff. So Choke, Tigerland. Um, he's really, really a very unique man and been incredibly successful and maxed out the industry that he's in. So Bo Flynn, thank you for being here today, brother. Oh, man. Thank you so much. I'd appreciate it. What a great introduction. And love that you know those movies, both the, you know, the, the studio commercial films and the indie ones, which are really close to my heart. I'm, a, I'm really honored to be here. I'm a huge fan of yours. And uh, I think it'll be fun today. It's going to be fun. And the list is much longer than that, you guys. Your quick Google search of <laughs> you see. You, you will be blown away. I, I, I sometimes don't even really believe it when I, when I look at the, the list. It's just, it's crazy, really. I want to start there. Uh, it's amazing that you said that because I, I, I was reading about you and, you know, we we're talking about all of our mutual friends and you and I have been communicating for a while now. Did you expect this? to happen in your life? Like, is this, the, are you living your dream or did, were there some left and right turns and you weren't even always sure you wanted to be on the, a producer in the movie business? It's a great question and I could answer, I could answer all that. And I am living my dream, 100% am. But it took a long time to formulate and to find. Um, a lot of people, you hear a lot of filmmakers, people are like, I, when I was five years old, I had a video camera in my hand and I was making movies. Like, that's not my story at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really do pinch myself often. I think that's a, that, that's a healthy feeling, but it, it doesn't take away from my ambitions. You know what I mean? I, I think there, it's a healthy feeling to feel like you're gonna have the rug pulled out underneath you, um, while at the same time, you can kind of pat yourself on the back of your achievements, but never really kind of settle or rest on them for too long, you know, because I, I feel like I have so much to do and I've been extremely, extremely blessed by, I made my first movie when I was 25 years old. So I have, I have made over 31 movies and yet I still feel like I have so much to give and I have so much left. And fortunately it's a career that allows you to kind of stay in for as long as, as you want or as long as they'll, they'll have you. I always have a theme in every movie, one theme, and it's my theme. It's my personal theme. It's usually father-son related. It's usually about family. Even look at San Andreas. It's about, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a disaster about an earthquake. It's actually, it's about a father trying to rescue his family. Like, it's like, that's like, that's what the theme of that movie and the drive for me was about. How did your relationship with your father shape who you are now? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, it shaped me in, in a massive way and not the way that, you know, you would expect, um, you know, it was, it was my father, you know, and everyone deals with divorce and leaving, but it was, it was tricky because my mom raised, you know, my dad left when I was, um, when I was three and my, my sister was one and, um, you know, he was someone that I really like looked up to, but he just, he wasn't, he wasn't around. And, um, you know, really kind of, I think is what drove me to go to school because my mom was also really never around at the time. This is, this is Miami, 70s and 80s. You have to think about that. That was a crazy wild time. And my mom was, 
was out every night. My dad was never around. And I became the head of the household very quickly and was raising my sister and was raising my mom, to be really honest. And, um, you know, that's something I, I never really talk about. My mom was married six times. Uh, my dad was married three times. Um, and was constantly moving. I, I moved, um, I think I moved 12 times before I graduated high school. So I was constantly kind of having to figure out how to kind of like adapt and where we moved from, from Miami to California to San Diego to back. I was in numerous different schools all the time. And it's very, very challenging at that age to have to really, you know, figure out who you are and who your identity is and how you can find a kind of a group of people that accept you and you feel safe with. And uh, you feel like you didn't have a childhood as a result? No, I didn't. I really, my life, I don't feel like really began for me until college. I feel like that's really when I, um, when I identified with who I was and, and found inner peace in myself and, and belief in myself. I was, um, I really, I, I really didn't because I was too busy trying to, you know, kind of support my mom and, and get out of bed in the morning and, and make sure my sister was, was fed, you know? Um, so it was a, it was a very, very tricky time. And I still look back on it to this day. I, I don't understand what what caused me. No one ever asked um, what your grades were to see my report card or anything. And I, I was so motivated to do well in school. And I, I, I don't know what drove that because it wasn't any parenting whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I still try and figure that out um, or try and figure that out what that was. Sometimes it's one of the few places in our life that we're getting any significance or recognition could even be at school when we got the aid and if we didn't bring it home. I know that I found for me, in our environment, when I achieved, it was the only time I felt significant or recognized. And even if it wasn't even my own house, it could be at school, it could be by a coach. Right. That did. But in your case, as a 50 year old man, that upbringing, your childhood affects literally the messages in some of the top grossing movies of all time. Yeah, it's all directly in by there. that experience. It's all directly in there. And it's also why I really like, I just, I want so badly to be a good father to, to Weston Ruby, to my daughters, you know? Um, want to be there for them and really give them a stable upbringing and a huge part of my inspiration and give back in that way too. So I want to give back to them. I want to give back in terms of to the movies. And then to your point, Ed is like, I do really, I happen to really genuinely love people and I want to give back to them in any capacity that I, that I can. And I just feel like starting to get to that place in my life where I feel like I'm ready for it. And also where I can, you know, have that platform too, you know? Wonderful. It's funny because it's a movie that drove me to go to NYU. I was, I grew up very kind of nerdy and I was a computer hacker and I just was in my bedroom all the time and I was either on my computer or, or I, was, I was watching a movie. And um, I watched every movie I could as a kid just because it was my escape. I grew up in Miami, Florida with a single mother who was a social worker. Um, there was never even a moment that I connected the idea of myself making films there was no connection whatsoever i didn't know anyone in the business hollywood was its own isolated bubble that was you know sixty thousand feet and um there was a movie called wall street that i really really loved and re i was a huge oliver stone fan you know from scarface and into um platoon and then wall street and uh bud fox who is the uh, charlie sheen character went to nyu and um he went to work on Wall Street. He's the first half of the movie. He started out very kind of ambitious and yeah. very well intended. We know that he made a deal with Gordon Gecko and the devil and he yeah. learned the hard way. But I really want, so I went to NYU. I worked on Wall Street when I was 18 years old. I worked for an IPO firm and I went to Stern School of Business, but I had a real crisis 
I was, and at 18, I was, I had my series seven and I had a real crisis um, in life because by the end of freshman year, um, I was very unhappy. I was extremely unhappy and I was not doing, I was not getting any satisfaction, but it was, it was an issue because that was my dream. That's what I had set up to achieve. And it happened very quickly. Now, when I say like, I also had that, you know, at that time in that age, I was very driven by the dollar sign and I wanted to be worth, you know, hundred million dollars by 25 and all of those things that a lot of us share, but it was all for the wrong reasons and wrong intentions. And once I transferred out of Stern School of Business and I went to the School of Arts and Sciences and I just started taking random classes, that's when my life changed. Wow. So, so the movie affected you in the standpoint that you wanted to go get rich, but at the same time it affected you wanting to make movies at the same time, right? That's, ex that's, exact, that's exactly right. But again, I had no connection or relationships whatsoever to it. And when I transferred to arts and sciences, that's when I started taking film. I just started taking class. I took classes on Central Park. I took classes on acting. I took classes on filmmaking. I took classes on philosophy. Things that were never offered in the business school. Yeah. And from that, I started making all these relationships and people that were filmmakers and also just saw New York City in a complete and different light. It's amazing. Everybody listen to this when you're hearing Bo talk, because you may have a dream, you're going down one road, and there's, there's these turns you can make. So this is a man who's had three billion plus in gross on his movies, guys. I mean, you're talking about to express the level of success this man's had in this industry. And it's amazing. It's almost like, Bo, because I feel like, I think we both feel like there's a connection, you and I. And it's almost like you're in my questions because one of the things I've observed about you and mutual friends have told me about you is the Bud Fox thing didn't happen to you. And I think that's one of the reasons you're successful. You've heard me say this before, but people can kind of get intoxicated by their own success. Yes. Their, their will to win can be bought, not just with failure, but the best of the best, success doesn't buy their will to win. You know exactly what I mean. There's a lot of one-hit wonders. There's guys that had a good three or four-year run in your industry. Maybe they start believing the pats on the back or they enjoy the accolades or the access or the money a little too much too soon. Yes. And it seems to me it's not affected you, your ambition or drive and I want you to talk about this. It's not in any of the things we discussed prior. You have what I see in all max out achievers, which is a, an element of obviously a skill set that you need. You're excellent at what you do. But from a, a mindset standpoint, high degree of self-confidence combined with an incredible amount of humility, meaning you know you know what you do, you do well, but there's so much humility that you want to grow. Maybe there's even a level of insecurity about that that I think is healthy. Sure. But talk about that. Be, don't be humble for a minute. That You are unique, especially in your industry, brother. Your level of humility and ambition and drive to still go where you are. True or false? It's very true. I really can't believe how you just kind of just really drilled down on all that. I mean, that's, that's a really incredible assessment. And I'll be really honest with you. It's, it's, it's really accurate. Um, I do feel like and always have. Like, I've always felt like I definitely had a bigger calling. I definitely have enormous drive and will to win. Um, but I do have um, moments of insecurities and really feel like, even when you just said $3 billion in box office, like it's just, it's even hearing that sometimes is, is really um, sometimes hard to process. But meanwhile, it's like, I feel yet there's so much more to come. Um, but I think that's what also is, is allowed me to stay relevant and stay in this business for as long as I've had, which is, you know, um, 25 years. 
you know, already. Um, um, I just turned 50 years old and, um, and that's been a big moment for me and it happened during the, um, you know, the pandemic. But um, I really do believe that humility is very sincere. It's not a show, but it's also, I feel like it's really served me really well because it's kept me honest. And it's, um, it really has allowed me to really continually do the work. I'm a big believer in like in no shortcuts because anytime I've taken a shortcut, it's usually failed miserably. Um, and I also have never found myself really lucky, never won in, in you know, it won a, like, a bingo game. I've never kind of like, just like <laughs> first movie turned out to do, you know, a billion dollars at the box office. Like it's all been a natural progression of hard work. And while I've seen peers and other people just arrive in Hollywood and their first or second film is this massive runaway hit, in the moment it was very confusing because I'm like, I've been doing this for a really long time. Why am I not at that place where they are? But then in retrospect, when I look back over the duration of my career, you can't take any of that hard work away. That's mm -hmm. all belongs to me. And it gives me this incredible confidence that I know what I'm doing and can continue it where other people that have kind of been a flash in the pan or like you said, a one-hit wonder or focus on the money, now looking back over a career of 25 years, they're not around, they're not yeah. here. You have another unique thing that I wanna, I want, I think all max out achievers have, which is you've also stepped forward in big moments. I think in everyone's life, there's a handful of moments that can define them. Yep. And 100%. some risks and, and you step into that moment when it presents itself because you're prepared. And one of those moments for you is where you show vision and you take a chance. Great leaders see something in people other people don't see. And so Brendan Fraser doesn't come back to journey the center of the earth. You, you call this shot where you have this meeting with this guy. Yeah. And that meeting was one of those handful of moments that oh, you were already doing very well, but it altered the direction of an industry. Yes. It altered the direction. It took your life to a new level and it certainly altered the direction of this man's life. And I, a lot of things happened there. You met your moment where your preparation gave you insight. You took a chance, right? Yes. And you had the vision to see something in this person that not everybody was seeing at that given time. So I know who that guy is. But why don't you take us through that meeting, what happened, how the conversation went, and how you came to make that decision, which altered the course of history in the movie industry. Wow. Well, first of all, Ed, I got to tell you, this is A, what makes you great. <laughs> the fact that you are in this insightful and can identify that moment, right? Because it's not easy. Like I can tell you what my career defining moments are, you know, pretty, pretty readily. It's, it's amazing how you can really quickly identify it on your own and through your research and through your conversations with our peers. Um, because that, that's the moment. I mean, in terms of I've had a lot of great opportunities and breaks, but that certainly is, is the game changer for me and I, and I think you know for the person that you're talking about and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you made a movie called journey to the center of the earth and you talk about industry changing and not a lot of people know this and uh, I'm not as you can tell or, or as you were mentioning I'm not a big braggart but we were the first um, 3d movie in um, the entire industry in the history of the movie business was journey to the center of the earth James Cameron's avatar was released after ours we used his cameras and we used the fusion system and James came to set to see how it was working with us and he used us as like a, as a beta testing movie. But we were the first 3D movie ever in, in the entire industry. And that was a huge deal for the movie business because A, you can only achieve it in the theaters. B, it allowed them to upcharge their tickets. 
and C, it became huge all over the world, particularly in China, which is a massive, massive market. And, and we were a massive hit in China, one of the biggest hits in China with Journey to the Center of the Earth. And it also caused all the theaters to have to shift their movies over to wow. the 3D projection system in order to play it. So that was that. So that movie had a huge impact in general to me and to the industry. And the movie did $250 million globally. And that was really, that was my biggest hit at the time. And you know, it's a quarter of a billion dollars and just in theatrical box office that doesn't include ancillary revenues. It doesn't include DVDs, TV cycles, et cetera. So that was a big moment for us. Sequel was, was an easy green light for um, yep. New Line at the time for Toby Emmerich and Richard Brenner. They, they supported that movie. It wasn't, Journey to the Center of the Earth was not an easy green light at the time. Brenner Fraser was kind of like, you know, kind of like definitely still kind of had his things and the movie wasn't, um, you know, a slam dunk by any stretch. But the sequel after $250 million, you, you green light that. Um, we then had some creative disagreements with Brendan over, um, over the director and the direction of the film. Um, I really respect New Line for supporting me and taking a strong position because we're making that sequel. You know, it's like if, if I would have loved if Brennan would have done it, um, but he didn't. And he, it wasn't, and New Line stayed the course and they stayed with making the sequel of the movie and supported uh, myself and the team, the creative team. Um, there was um, a lot of discussions about who could step in for that role. How, A, how do you achieve it um, creatively? How do you make that work? Because Josh Hutcherson, who was in the first one and was in the second, went on to Hunger Games. He was an important element to us. And, um, you know, he was 12 years old when he did the first one. And, you know, he was 15 when he did the second. And um, I kept, the way my name kept coming up to you and the way your name kept coming up to me, the name Dwayne Johnson was just flying into my life in all kinds of ways. Um, Carla Gugino was a very close friend of mine and fabulous actress. She had worked with him a few times, talked about him. You need to know Dwayne Johnson on a personal level. He's from Miami, went to University of Miami. He's the greatest guy. He is so driven and ambitious. You know, it's like you guys would be a match made in heaven. I heard that from another good friend of mine um, Matt Gerald, who had just worked with him, who's an actor and, and um, was visiting me in, in Budapest when I was making a film because I was really like, I was at a loss for who, and I'm, I feel casting is one of my, one of my strengths and producing. I feel like I really can identify who's right for the role and how to do it. And I've had a lot of success with big breakout actors where it was their first movie and then they went on to be huge stars. Um, and I had a hard time replacing this, um, this role. And, um, Eventually, I just, I said, he's the guy. Dwayne Johnson is the guy. He's the one who's going to be able to replace this. He is a movie star. He has the energy. He has the comedy, though he hasn't had a chance to really show it. Um, he was just coming off of, of Tooth Fairy, um, which had just been released. And, and that was a movie that Dwayne talks a lot about in terms of that challenge, his authenticity, which is such an important part of our business and all business in, gen you know, in general. Um, and we went on a rogue trip, myself and the director, we went on a rogue trip to Atlanta to meet with Dwayne. We bought the plane tickets ourselves. We flew down there, we sent him the script. Um, he agreed to a meeting. He was shooting a movie down there. Flew down, I'll never forget it, ever, ever, ever this moment. Um, knocked on the door and he answered the door. 
just huge, hulking, incredible burst of energy, opens the door, and he goes, Bo Flynn? And I go, yeah, that's me. And he goes, come here, brother. And he gave me the biggest hug, mm. biggest hug. Mm. I mean, I've never, met, I've never met him in my life. I mean, it was, like, <laughs> it was just this incredible moment of just connectivity, energy, you know, whether you want to believe in the universe, in God, in fate, we were determined to come together. We sat down, we spent the day together, we talked about the movie, we talked about how we do it, we showed him the previs, we put together an incredible presentation, and in the room he said, I'm in, let's go. And, you know, look, these are, those are hard decisions to make in your career, to in the room say like you're going to do, it's, the movie's a family movie, he flies on bumblebees, there's yeah. some real risky things that have to be done. But we went ahead, we made that movie, he was awesome in it. There's such a trust for him around the world from the audience and for right. families trust him. And that movie did $350 million worldwide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of really never looked back. But I, I will tell you, and, I, and I'll, I'll let you jump in in a second. When we were shooting that movie, there was a really incredible moment that we had together. And we were in, the, we were in his trailer. We were just talking. We would always, every day, we would kind of chop it up, recap the day, talk about the movie, talk about our futures. Um, and I said to him, I said, Dwayne, I said, who, who do you want to be? Like, who's your career? What, what do you want to, where do you want to be in, in your career now? Is, is like, you know, in terms of the way you're feeling. And he goes, he goes, he goes, brother, I want to be the biggest movie star that ever lived. He goes, I want to be Will Smith, who was giant at the time, right? And had incredible respect, obviously, and Independence Day and, you know, bad boys and all those movies are going to be Will Smith and more. Wow. This was over 10 years ago that he said that to me. And he looked me right down the eyes and said it. And I had chills when he said it. Mm -hmm. And I told him, and I, and I said, Dwayne, I said, I'm in. I will hitch my wagon to you and let's go. Wow. Wow. That is, that is exactly how that, how that story went. And I feel like the story is still being written. We've yeah. had incredible success together. We had a great time together, and we still have so much more to go. How many movies have you guys done together? Um, eight movies. We're about to, to start our ninth. Eight movies, and we'll talk in a minute. They're also partners in a tequila company and some other stuff, too. So I think what's powerful about that story is two things. One is his ambition and his vision. Yes. You're not giving yourself enough credit for calling the shot to get him, by the way, which at the time was not conventional wisdom that you should do it. So you're, again, there's the humility thing. So if you go really read the story about this, it was both you wanting to get him, but it was also you taking a little bit of a risk and doing it at the time. And then the other powerful thing, guys, in partnerships, and I just wanted to, you know, break apart some of the elements here. It's Bo asking, Dwayne, what do you want? How can I help you get it? Like, those are the elements of great partnerships where you're, you're talking about these things. How can I help you get what you want, right? And I think that's what great leaders do, great partners do. A couple other things you say that, that take me back, because I think there's such wisdom in them. And I think maybe there's a commonality with you and Dwayne on this too, which is I don't think you can stick your toe in something and be successful. I think you have to be all in. Yeah. You, you phrase it a little bit differently about plans and A's and B's and all that stuff. But yes. I don't know anyone at the max out level. I mean, you, can, you can do okay. Like I tried out, worked out. But to get to the top of an industry, and in particularly your industry, as fickle, as competitive, as uh, consistent as you have to be in your industry, you might have 
in your business, you might get, you might have, you might be allowed after a while, one failure, but you don't get two or three. No. Right. And no. so talk about that, not having a plan B element for you and how you think that contributes to success. This is huge guys. Uh, I love, I love that Ed and you, you're totally right. And you're, you're speaking a really strong, you know, kind of part of my philosophy and what I try and kind of, you know, give back to people starting in the business, particularly in Hollywood, but I think it's relevant to all businesses, which is there's no B plan. Um, you have to kind of plant your flag and you have to be all in. It's the only way. I mean, there is no more competitive business than Hollywood and the industry of, of making films and television. You are competing against the best of the best. Billions of people dream about doing it. Um, and are all coming to Los Angeles to compete for a handful of slots, right? I mean, it really is. It's a handful of people that are getting it done. If you break down, I guarantee you it's probably on the feature film side, it's probably um, 20 people that are making 80% of the movies in Hollywood. Wow. So it's, it's very, very small. So therefore, how can you come in to Hollywood? And I hear it all the time. People tell me like, oh, I'm going to come out, give it a year, see how it goes. I mean, it's, it's, you know what I mean? Uh, actor, writer, director, producer, whatever it may be, e either. It's like, you're going to give it a year. You're going to give this a year. It's like, but then give it a day and go home. Why are you even bothering? Why are you coming here? It's like, this has to be your life's mission. You have to arrive with a vision and you're going to back it up and you're going to be there because you are going to get your ass handed to you day in and day out. A lot of things that come up in your podcast and your discussions are the concept of rejection and the word no. Now look, all businesses we experience it, but I don't know, I would easily argue that in, that in Hollywood, you are getting rejected all the time. And the one thing that I was surprised by, even as I started to achieve success and was making movies that did hundreds of millions of dollars, still encountering rejection at a very deep level, you know, and, and hard no's, not just soft no's, you know what I mean? That I would be like, wow, after all that I've achieved, now here I am and now being told no, it's like, all right, well, let's go ahead and round up the wagons and let's figure it out because we're going to get it done. And that kind of energy is like, if you don't have that energy in the beginning, wow. then it's never going to last and kind of maintain later through your career when the stakes get higher, when you start to play it safer. You know, you talked about conventional wisdom. That's a real trap in our business mm -hmm. because the audience is, very, is always ahead of us. They, they consume so much content. They're watching so many shows, so many movies. And our turnaround time is very long. Like a lot of content people can make in a week, in a month, and have it out there and be relevant. For the film side, three years, four years, sometimes seven years. And when that movie comes out, it has to be topical, relevant, fresh. So you have to be way, way ahead of the curve creatively. You know, it's like, and everything has to go right in order for that to really land with the world. I never thought of it that way. You're, I, you're watching a movie, you're not really, this was three, four, five, sometimes six years ago. And I, I had not thought about that. And, and by the way, I think conventional wisdom in almost all businesses equal, you will be out of business. Correct. I don't think conventional wisdom really, there's principles that sustain themselves throughout life, right? But conventional wisdom, if, in fact, if you're working with people that use those kind of terms or think that way, you're toast. <laughs> ask, ask Blockbuster Video about conventional wisdom when it came to Netflix, right? Ask Barnes and Noble bookstores about conventional wisdom and Amazon comes along, you know, ask IBM about Microsoft. I mean, there's, we, we could go on and on and on, right? I mean, there's conventional wisdom could be death. But one thing about the movie business, 
And I, I, I look at, I don't know a lot about it, obviously. I have friends in it. But it's such a vast enterprise to make a movie, it seems to me. Like, all of these moving parts. I mean, everything. I mean, my, like, oh, the casting, the cinematographers, the editing, the, the script, the, I mean, it's, it, uh, every element is crazy, right? There's all these elements of it. And, and then when you're the producer, it's sort of all yours to some extent, right? Yes. And I think a lot of people as entrepreneurs, they're afraid of it. Like they're afraid of the mess. And I think you have to be tolerant of some messes in your life to be successful. And you talk so eloquently about the idea of, I mean, I, I, I finally accepted this later in my life. I can't control everything. Yes. Yeah, but that lack of that lack of control, I think, causes most people to never step into the space. I finally, later in my career, embrace that there's going to be a mess, and I can't. I have to just start and 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 to take action on things. And in your case, there's everything's yours. You're the producer. You own all of it at some point. The buck stops with you. But you talk so eloquently. Like it's one of my favorite things you talk about of, you, you know, you're not going to control everything. What is your approach about that? Because, I mean, imagine everybody, the, the, the scope of conceiving of a movie all the way through production and distribution. How do you handle that? What are your thoughts about control? Well, first of all, it's a super insightful question. I've never been asked it before. I'm really excited to speak to it. So thank you. And I'm just continually impressed, Ed, by the research that you do. And you say you don't know a ton about the movie business. I would beg to differ because your knowledge is, is on a very high level. So it's exciting to be having this conversation. But first, I want to answer, I want to answer in two parts. First of all, on the producing side, in terms of kind of all those elements, you're totally right. I mean, you're the CEO. You know, a lot of times people ask me, what is a producer? You know, and I'm always like, I have two answers for it. I always say, I'm the first one on, I'm the last one off. That's really, that's the bottom line. When I start, it's just, it's just me or maybe one or two other people and an idea. When I scale up, it's up to two, three, four thousand people. When you start doing visual effects and have thousands of visual effects shots, maybe another thousand, two thousand people. And then when I scale down, it's just me and that one or two people that I started with. And here we are just like on that Friday night, you know, just hoping that we did everything right when that movie opens up theatrically, you know? So it's like, so you are, you are basically, and it runs the same course as a start of business, right? You're like, you need to have an idea. You need to go ahead and, and exercise that vision. You need to put a team together. You need to scale the project up. You take it to market and then you go ahead and sell it. It's exactly what you do in a startup business, but that's every movie. So I've had 31 startup businesses, wow. some very successful, some not so much, you know, but that's part of it. But each time I've started up a business or started a movie, I've learned something, I've gotten better, I've gotten stronger, and I've, I've learned lessons that have put me more in control of that. But yet to your point, to the second point of, it still empowers you to know the more you do it, the still so much is out of your control, even if you become a master of the, the craft, you know? And there was one point, the career changing moment for me was that one you discussed about, about Dwayne Johnson and him doing Journey to, the, Journey to Mysterious Island sequel. Another changing point was an internal change, career changing moment. And it was when I used to get urgent phone calls from, you know, an agent or from an actor or from a director, you know, it was urgent. There's a crisis. And I used to really kind of like be like, shit, mm -hmm. I, I, I'll call back. I'll deal with that later. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, you're just like, okay, what, what's happening? What's going on? It's like, but then I had a realization, which is like, wait a second, I'm the producer, I'm the CEO, I'm the boss. Who's going to solve that? Who's better equipped to solve it? Me. I'm the one that's made X amount of movies. I'm the one that's been on the ground. I'm the one that's been on set for 2000 days. So once that changed, it really justified my job. And once I changed the whole way of thinking of it, I was like, now it comes in, there's a crisis, there's a fire, there's a thing. I'm like, great, where is it? Let me put it out. And that was a huge game changer for me. And I think that's such an important element for people to think about because it's scary when you have something going down, something falling apart. You know what I mean? Something that's like where it's like, but that's our job. And that's the job I signed up for. That's the job you sign up for. When there's a problem at your company, when there's an issue, you want to be the one to solve it and bring it on. But that took you years and years to get there. It took you years and years of, of you know, confidence and repetition to have the faith that you're like, all right, I can fix this. No problem. It's no issue at all. Most of the time, it's not even a real issue. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, but it takes you and your vision to see that. Mm-hmm. And then just to close the, the loop on, on this thought is... When you do finally have a movie and it's going out to the world and it's going out being released on 20,000 screens around the world. And on that Friday, you just hunker down, you isolate into your house, you surround yourself with your family and your friends. And all you can say to yourself is, did I do the best job possible? Did I do everything in my power to make the best project, the best movie? Did I do everything I can? Because if you can answer yes to that, then you could be really zen and okay with whatever the results are that weekend, you know? By the way, you're a million percent on it. I'm so glad we're doing this, Bo. I just, I know how much this is helping people. And in my own case, I've had failures. And a couple of those failures, I didn't answer that question the way I wanted to. I could have done more. I could have prepared better. I've also made the mistake, and you're, no one's brought this up to me before in the history of the show. So, and it, and meaning, you have a finite amount of energy in your life and where you point that energy matters. And in, if I go back to the failures I've had, and I don't really think they're failures, they're just setbacks. Honestly, I learned a lot. Like that was a gain for me, but I spread myself in way too many places. In other words, I wasn't strategic with where I invested my work, my energy and my focus. It wasn't for me. And I doubt for most people here, a lack of desire, a lack of work ethic, not at the level listening to this show, not at this level, or a lack of focus. It was a diversion of it almost for me. And you're really eloquent about that topic. So what is your advice about that exact thing? As a producer and entrepreneur, you have have to have a lot of plates spinning. You just have to. Projects are falling apart all the time. Um, You know, a a friend of mine and a producer – Um, Nina Jacobson, she said something that I love, which is movies want to be two things. They want to fall apart and they want to be bad, right? It's like, so, (laughs) and I feel like the same thing, all businesses, like that's our job to keep things together and to keep things great. You know, it's like, so, but with that, I found myself, I had all this really diverse slate, had all these ideas, all these things moving. I had movies, I had TV shows, I had business ideas, but nothing was leaving the launch pad. I had all these things percolating, but nothing was happening. And so, a lot of people relate to that. Yeah, and I was starting to, to think about it. I was like, okay, well, let me, sh- let me kind of shift here and let me invest more and less is the way I started to frame it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the same thing was happening in my personal life. I had a lot, I've been living in Los Angeles for 25 years. 
I had made a lot of friends from Miami to New York to Los Angeles to around the world, a lot of relationships, business relationships, but I wasn't getting anything in return from them either. I wasn't satisfied on a friendship level and on a business level, they were just surface. So I kind of replicated that same philosophy in terms of like, there's 10 people that I really love working with. They're really smart. I trust them. You know what I mean? It's like, let's invest in them. You know what I mean? It's like, and then all of a sudden I started investing in them. They were investing more back in me. Then I picked five projects instead of 50. Let's focus on these five and let's invest all my energy into that. To your point, you have a finite amount of energy. It's a zero sum game at the end of the day. So once I did that, everything changed for me. I started having more movies come together. The momentum was going. We were getting week by week by week, things were happening. And all five of those movies that I focused on all got made. Those relationships that I talked about that I invested more in, the connection was stronger. They trusted me more. I trusted them more. We created more business together. So it was actually really interesting. It was happening for me holistically, both in my business and personal life. And it's one of the greatest kind of you know pivots that I've made or that, that's happened to me in my entire life, truly. That's real advice from somebody who's achieving at a high level, you guys. And I can all I can do is just, I can't say it better than that. He's 100% right. It's a mistake I've made. And a hundred percent great advice. Like what's awesome about this interview is every single segment could be its own teaching unit. Like it's a master class on achievement and on actually execution too. I'm curious. I want to go back to Dwayne just for a minute because I'm curious. Yeah. If I asked you why is he successful? Because I've asked you why you're successful. Mm-hmm. If I asked you why is he successful, are the answers slightly different? Like what comes to mind? Um, I mean, let's, the last 10 years on the spinning earth, he's become of a handful of the most well-known and successful people on the planet. And it seems as if he's crushing it in his family. He's certainly crushing it physically. He seems to have good relationships like what he has with you. I don't think it's been a bad financial decade for the man. Notoriety, impact, influence. You know, I'm, I'm, I know not everything's perfect in anybody's life. People think that in mine too, and it's not. But it certainly seems like this guy's maxing out pretty well. It's multiple areas. Yeah. And you've been up close to observe that and you've yeah. contributed to it. What would you say about that, your observations? And you would really know. Well, it's, it's really smart because, you know, as, a, as an actor now, as, as a, you know, kind of CEO of many businesses, it's still, he's, it's a diff, slightly different career in terms of producer and actor. So there are things that he does differently. Um, than me and that are not typical of movie stars to do and I'll, I'll talk about that and then there are some areas that we intersect and I believe that I've um, you know kind of shown him some ways in terms of how I run my business and some ways that he's run his business that have you know kind of that I've um, kind of taken from him but one as, as we'll start as, as an actor and as a, as a movie star um, that he does that's very different and I'll give real I'll give a real specific anecdote there's no one that works harder he really, you know, it's like all of his mantras, he actually backs up, he practices what he preaches, he rolls his sleeves up, does the work, hardest worker in the room. He never rests on his laurels. Um, he's very loyal, which is also very rare in our business. Um, he um, also is not afraid to pick up the phone and do things directly. That's, that's extremely rare. People are surrounded with agents, managers, yeah. lawyers, all of their people and those people go ahead. But the minute that they start talking on your behalf, and I understand the, the importance of them, they're important and they're needed. But the minute that they're talking, it's the telephone game. It's never going to be the same the way it is from Ed Milet to the other person on the other end of the phone or the meeting or from Bo Flynn 
together or Dwayne Johnson. So he will go ahead and be the, you know, go ahead and, and he will pick up the phone if necessary and call you and lay it out, even if it's bad news. Something too that I've really, that I think we've both taken from each other is, is the team. He's a huge believer in the team and he has surrounded himself with incredible people. Danny Garcia has been his long-term partner and manager for a very long time. She is incredible and brilliant, has vision, and he relies on her. Hiram Garcia, who he grew as, as his assistant, all the way up to now president of Seven Box Productions. Um, his relationship with me, you know, 10 years, and here we are about to go and, and um, you know, jump into our ninth picture. Like, that loyalty is very rare, and I feel that that's really paid off for him in a, in a huge, huge way. But, um, you know, Dwayne is, is a force of nature. He doesn't accept no. That comes up, obviously, a, a lot in your conversations. He really, there's always another way. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's like he gets kind of turned on when he's told no, or we can't do this, or why? Because that's the way we've done it in the past. Well, let's change it to the way we do it in the future. And then lastly, too, is like, he's not afraid. And I, I, when I say he's not afraid, you have to really think about that for a second, because it's not just a broad-based statement. What I'm saying is, is like, not afraid means when you make a choice in your career as, as an actor and movie star, your whole career could be gone with one bad decision. So when Dwayne Johnson went ahead and like said he's going to do an HBO show called Ballers, now now we're looking at, oh yeah, it's great, I love that show. But not at the moment. No one at his level of stardom was doing television or cable. You know what I mean? It's like, so that could have gone wildly wrong. That was a real trailblazing moment, meaning he wasn't afraid. You know what I mean? When Dwayne Johnson creates a a network TV show called the Titan games and is the face of it. Yeah. I haven't seen anyone do that at, at his level. Do you know what I mean? It's like that could have gone and now it's a big hit. And now everyone's like, Oh yeah, of course that's the path. That was never the path. When you look back on movie stars in the past on Clint Eastwood and you know, Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, that was never the path. You're right. He had to create that. And it was because he wasn't afraid and he took risks. And those are real specific examples of, of what I mean. Cause we forget, Right. A lot of times we forget of like what were real risks because they worked out. So they're, they're, not they're, they're, they're another win. You're so right. You know, I, I interviewed The Undertaker today. It'll be out. It was out prior to this. And um, I asked him, he's 30 years in WWE, longest wrestler ever. Wow. And uh, we're talking about leadership. And he said one of the key elements was loyalty. It's one of the things not talked about. When you talk about loyalty and su uh, or success in life and leadership, the element of loyalty, and you have it too, you're being humble. Loyalty is a huge factor in long-term success. The other one, like when I watch football, my least favorite thing is watching a team get ahead and then play the prevent defense. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and a lot of people get to a certain level of success, and you could have done this too, Bo. They start kind of playing the prevent defense of life. Less risks. They stay in this lane. And I admire you for not always doing that. Like there's a story around San Andreas if we have time. Like you've taken some risks, right? And and in Dwayne's case, I'm glad that you revealed that. It's not something I would have thought of, but you're right. Because the tequila thing you guys have done is working out pretty well. Because the, the TV show worked out pretty well. Because ballers worked out. But those were all significant risks. Yes. And speaking of loyalty, I'd make a mistake if I didn't say this, but Marley is a big part of your success, right? Yeah. Huge. I mean, huge. huge. And she's a successful actress in her own right. Yes. When you have a, when you have a husband – Conquering the world and doing what you're doing. 
and she was successful. She, she made some decisions in terms of supporting your family. I think I'm right about this. Well, yeah, you're very right about it. It helped you rise up in your career as well. I, I think to do justice to your story, we should at least talk about her for a minute. So, because I think every, most people listening to this probably have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse, or will someday. Yeah. So how's that factored into to your achievements in your life? I mean, it's um, really grateful that you brought that up. She's, um, she's made some incredible sacrifices in her career in order for us to build and grow a family. Um, you know, success is, is vapor in Hollywood. It's fleeting at all, at all times. And Marley has built an incredible, incredible career um, for herself. And she would then get to a point where like, she'd be super hot and on the cover of Vanity Fair. And then, you know, we, she gets pregnant and, and we have a daughter and, and that takes you off the market for, you know, two years at least. And then you have to build it back up and you have to start to kind of build your career. And it's almost like, yes, you have the skills and you have the foundation, but you have to then rebuild it with the public. You know what I mean? Out of sight, out of mind. A lot of times, you know, you have to really stay out there and remind people, remind the town, remind, you know, the casting directors that you're there and, and ready to go. And you've got, you know, you've got it, you've got that star power to give. And then she built it back up again. And then we had a second daughter and then you kind of have to go. And it's like, you know, it's very unique in terms of, of Hollywood that way. And it's a big sacrifice, you know, it's a big sacrifice to, to, to have a child. Cause again, you just, you can't be on, it's hard to be on camera, you know, when you're in the middle of, of, you know, kind of having, having a baby over the course of it. And, that has provided me with such an incredible blessing in terms of two incredible daughters, yeah. um, a family that loves me. And, and once I had my daughters, I really also changed my entire career drive. It was my drive a lot of times was, you know, in terms of ambitions and how do I achieve more and how can I have this and more of that. And once I had my daughters, um, it really just became really easy. It just, everything was for them. It's really simple now. So um, for me, that's the drive. That's um, awesome, man. And I, that was all given to me by Marley. So you guys, that's an element of success. Just having a great relationship. People ask me all the time, well, what if I don't have that support? You know, that's something you got to really work on. It's difficult when you don't have it. And in your industry, momentum is one of the most important things to have. And when you have children, you lose that momentum. Yeah, and, and so that's a huge success, sacrifice. And speaking of your industry, it's not, guys, we're really talking about content creation here. So everyone listening to this is sort of in your business in the sense that, I love what you said earlier, but 31 startups. That's right. But also you're in the business of creating content and the way it's consumed. Like I know you've got a movie right now that you were going to release in one sort of platform and now you're going to do it differently. But also there's people here that create social media content. So just, I'm just curious about your thoughts on content creation in general, distribution of messages. What do you see coming in the future? And again, conventional wisdom is not something that would serve anybody in this space. I know that's an open-ended question, but what are your thoughts on content creation, on the future of your business, and any advice you'd give to somebody right now who's creating content every single day? Right. Well, it's really astute, and, um, and it's an important point. And we, you and I could, could really talk about this for a long time. And it's an important, important conversation because what's happening is there were barriers. There were barriers of filmmakers, TV makers, you know, short form, social media. It's now all converged into one. You're right. We are all content creators. You know, and, and the other day I had, I had to fill out 
I don't know, some registration form or something and it put, you know, kind of career, I put content creator. And it was one of the first times that I've done it because I've always been a film producer, right? But that's kind of like, it's a dated title. It's it's not really accurate. I create content, create content for the world. I'm platform agnostic and I've shifted the entire company of my company to be that way. We are storytellers. We create content, however however it's delivered to the audience, I'm okay with. If it's through a movie theater experience, if it's through IMAX, if it's through streaming through your television, your iPad, your phone, I'm all in. I want to you know, connect with the most eyeballs around the world possible. And I feel that's what everyone is, is doing, right? And any form or platform through you know, Instagram, through Snapchat, through Facebook, whatever it may be, it's all the same. We're storytellers, our stories need to be told. And now we have access to everyone now. It's actually really exciting. And the, the power has shifted to content creators. It's shifted to you, it's shifted to me, because distribution now is there for us. Before distribution held all the cards, they held it all. They got to be the cipher and they got to decide what went through and what didn't. Not anymore. Now it's up to you and I and all the people listening to this. It's like, what story do you want to tell? What message do you want to put out? What's your brand? What's your message? And go ahead and and just pick the platform. It all deserves to be made. It's just not necessarily, maybe it doesn't, doesn't warrant being theatrical released, but that's okay. Then it could just go straight directly through, you know, through Instagram to, you know, to the world. And, and that's okay too. You know what I mean? It's, it's all the same. It's, there's no bias or judgment in terms of how you consume content anymore. And that's really exciting. Couple hundred shows. That's one of my favorite answers ever. And it opened my mind up a little bit. Like we're all content creators and, but more specifically guys, we're all storytellers. Some people don't know it. Your, your content should be telling a story. So Ed Milet's got a team of 10 or 20 people and he creates content that's podcast, YouTube, Instagram, et cetera. Bo's got a platform will have two, 3,000 people helping tell his story. Maybe you're going to have you tell yours with your iPhone. Right. And to the extent that you have a team is probably to the extent of the type of distribution you're going to have. And the lead character for most of you in that content is you, is your consumer, is the difference you want to make, is your mission, is your cause. Man, that's like another day. I'm so sick when I do these shows now. I'm listening for like Instagram <laughs> clips, you know? And that's what I hear, I hear when you talk. I want to go back for a minute and just ask you a couple things because this is too good, so we're going to go a little longer. I'm going to keep yeah. you. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, and I know that you don't mind that. Not at all. But you said not everything's been a success, right? And is there an element of the ones that weren't as successful as you assumed they were going to be that's consistent? In other words, you know, is there something you, you go back and there was a lesson from the couple times you weren't as successful as you wanted to be? What was, what was your takeaway then? Yeah. Um, there is a, a, um, a movie and uh, Dwayne and I have a whole runner of, about it, but, um, but it, it is, it is relevant and it's relevant to this conversation. And, and, and um, I, um, I was just starting to make studio pictures. Um, I, had a, I had a dream, um, which by the way, that's an, again, another area we can talk about, like not dreams in terms of like career dreams, like dream in terms of like sleeping dreams, I think are really, really important. Um, you know, I mean, Einstein had the theory of relativity in his dream about a dream about a farmer and cows. And, you know, I had a dream one night that um, I was in a bubble and I was running, running away from uh, my house and I had arms and legs and I was sprinting and, 
and trying to get away from my, from my family. Probably there's some real deep, you know, truths there. Um, and I woke up and I wrote it down. And I met with uh, some writers that I like who, who now are huge writers and write all the uh, Illumination movies, um, all the Despicable Me's. But um, I called them and I pitched them this idea about a, a kid in a mobile bubble and, and uh, sold it to Disney as a pitch very quickly and made this movie called Bubble Boy with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's one of Jake Gyllenhaal's first movies. And every day on set with the director, I would say, can you believe that Disney's letting us make this movie? It was like, it was edgy and it was pushing the limits and it wasn't just a straight ad family comedy. He's like, this is great. They're really supporting our vision, doing everything. And they were great. And then all of a sudden the movie comes out and once it comes to distribution and marketing, they're like, what, what is this movie? This is not a Disney movie. This is not a Disney film. And then um, the movie got boycotted because they thought we were making fun of, um, you know, of, of the disease of being stuck, you know, where you have no immunities and can't be out, which was of course not the case because the movie, he, the kid wasn't even, Jake's wasn't even sick at the end, whatever. But was, my point is, is like, if something doesn't feel right, it's usually not right. And we were the way we weren't in the lane of Disney. We weren't making a movie for that brand. Mm. And in the moment I was young and I was like, oh, this is great. We're radical. We're pushing limits. We're doing things. But like that you have to know who your audience is. And, you know, eventually in terms of how you're going to get your movie through. So the movie ended up being released on like a thousand, 800, a thousand screens, which is, is the death knell. If you're released on that amount of screens as a, as a producer, you just know your movie's over. The movie opened to a very small amount and, and it, was, it was rough, it was rough. You take these things very personally and you wear it. You know what I mean? It's like, and so I just, I feel like it was something where I was really proud of how that all came about. The movie really wasn't intended for Disney to be distributed and I've learned that now and that kind of speaks to this concept of like identifying your lane. Know who your audience is, know who your distributor is, know who you're trying to get to, stay in it. If it's like people like a lot of like know where the meat and know where the potatoes are. Like it's not, can't all be mashed together. That's not what people want. You need to be identified, especially in a world right now where it's like we're being bombarded with things and shows and video games and, you know, and publications that you can consume so much so quickly in a vertical world. But it's like you have to cut through. So you have to know what you are. And that movie really taught me that. Man, that's so good. There's another little secret lesson in there, you guys. Bo's got all these things in there. So, <laughs> little thing he said, and even though it was the wrong lane, it wasn't that the idea was bad. He said that when he had this dream, I want to talk about this dream thing for a minute. I want to stay yeah. on there with you. Yeah. He had this dream that he woke up and wrote it down. Do you know how many people have unbelievable divine ideas in their sleep and think, yeah, I'm going to go back to bed and I'll write it down in the morning. Have you ever had that happen, people? Those things, then you can't remember what it was. It's not the same spirit, the same inspiration. Tell you a really quick story about this. I want to encourage everybody that when you have a dream, you should have a notepad next to your bed, every single one of you here, or something on your phone you can type in. When you get woken up with that dream, wake up and write it down. Wayne Dyer, remember the great Wayne Dyer? I met Wayne Dyer running on a beach one day, and he was writing a book called The Power of Intention ended up being a great book and uh we ended up visiting and he told me he says i believe that's like the divine waking you up with inspiration mm. don't go back to sleep get up and write when these ideas wake you up all people another little secret most of you wouldn't know most people i know that are at the very top level what they do they have that very habit 
they wake up from dreams and write things down. And yes. a lot of the things in their life, is that not true, Bo? That's it's very, very true. I completely agree. And I, I do it all the time. I still do it. I have a notebook right next to my bed and I write and I wake up as uncomfortable it could be or you're tired. You have to write it down. It's there. It's, it's rare. Most people don't do it. Yet almost all of you dream. And there's a lot being lost by you by not paying attention to those dreams. You are so on. That's, that's, no, that's not in any personal development handbook anywhere, but it's a truth. It's an it's absolute truth. truth. It's truth. And, you ha and, it's like, and it's not always right there either. It's like you have to write it down because then when you wake up, you have to look at it and you have to put a little thought into it yeah. and drill down on that because there is usually something there that you can apply in your business life and your creative life. I, I had a dream about that I was inside a building during a massive earthquake and i w wrote it down and i woke up i had already done the first 3d movie ever and then i woke up at that dream and then i was like what if we made the first disaster movie ever in 3d and that's what spawned san andreas and i called i called my very close friends at new line toby emmerich and richard brenner and carolyn blackwood and i said this is a one-line idea for a movie and they're like let's do it let's go so you know, awesome. And that also then was, we did that, you know, I mean, off the back of, of, of the relationship with Dwayne, immediately called Dwayne. He said, let's go, brother, I'm in. And, and that movie was really a huge breakout film for, for Dwayne and, and for myself and for the studio. It was the biggest movie of, of Warner Brothers, not just New Line. It was the biggest movie of Warner Brothers, the New Line of 2015. Masterclass, you guys. Are you feeling all these elements coming together? The risk with Dwayne, building the relationship, what do you want, the dream, the execution, the writing it down, the taking the risk, all of this stuff comes together and bam, you have a bow. That's how these things work, everyone, okay? What advice would you give? You could go back. Yeah. A lot of young people watching this. And by the way, I don't mean to mean like chronologically. There's early startup entrepreneurs, early people with a dream they're chasing. There's people that listen to this. There's a lot of athletes. A lot of people want to get in the entertainment business that follow me as well. If you could go back to that, maybe you wouldn't change anything, but you go back to that guy in New York who's switching majors and you could whisper some advice from the 50-year-old Bo. Isn't that weird to say 50? Wow. Yeah. yeah. But the 50-year-old Bo could talk to the... 18 year old Bo, what would you tell him now? What advice would you give him? It's a great question. And it's, it's funny, just one word popped in in my head really quickly. Because um, there's a lot of things right that we wish we could share when we were, you know, younger. But the word that popped into my head immediately Ed, is is authenticity. And that's something that I really, really struggle with, to be honest with you. Authenticity has nothing to do with, with honesty or, or loyalty. It's about a representation of, of who you are and who you are to others. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I felt there was a version of Bo that people wanted. There was a version of me as a human being, as a friend, as a producer. And it never, no one knew this except for me. You're the only one that knows that layer is not actually fully authentic to who you are. It was presentational. I was getting things done. I was moving things forward. And I wasn't feeling fully satisfied and my career wasn't where it should have been. And once I just said, you know what, the real me, I don't care what, uh, what the repercussions are. I'm letting the real me come through. That's when everything really shifted for me in a huge, huge way. And that is, now look, I had to go through that lesson. So maybe if, if the 50 year old Bo came back and whispered that to NYU Bo, you know what I mean? Maybe who knows what would have happened, but it took me a while to figure it out. And it was just an incredible cleansing 
and a life and soul changing experience. It made me also so happy, maybe so happy as a human being to just be in the skin that I want to be in and not trying to be someone else that I think other people want. Wow. Yeah. And I like you a lot. So I'm glad you did that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a profound message. You know, I have a little element of that. There's even a, it's probably even a little element of that that still exists in me from time to time in certain settings. Yeah. You yeah. know, in certain settings, you know, perhaps I could be more authentic. Uh, you're making me think right there. Right. There's a little people, element of me. People want Ed Milet, right? What they yeah. know from, you know, from you and all your success from your shows, from your Instagram, they want that. And so you want to deliver that. But, but I don't know, you know, is that exactly 100% exactly who you are inside yeah. and how you're feeling at that exact moment? You know, yeah. it's like it's... Well, that's the thing. Well, I'm answer that. That's a great question for both of us too. I'm a really multifaceted person. So there are moments that I think the true me is this, but I have down moments and weak moments and angry moments and fearful moments too. And perhaps it'd be better for me in certain environments to share those more often. Because to your point earlier too, I did make the decision. As I've gotten older, my circle of friends has gotten smaller and deeper. And I put a much more of my energy into a more concentrated uh, place. I totally agree with the points that you've made too. Like it's, it's, I like you said earlier that you enjoy listening to my content when we were off camera because it's validated things that you already do. And the reason that today's so powerful for me is it validates things I already do and it validates things that I teach. And you're like a manifestation of so many of these things. A um, couple more things really quickly. I want to talk about pivoting. Right now, between COVID, the economy's changed. Um, lots changed and is going to continue to change. And uh, during the time that we're recording this, there's a great conversation happening in this country about justice and yes. equality. Yes. And that needs to be had, as painful as it is to have, as necessary to have. And I'm grateful that it's happening. Um, I'd like to see these injustices stop and these murders stop. But at the same time, the conversations needed to be had. And... And uh, you, though, even in business, have had to pivot. You had a movie. Talk about that. They were supposed to do one thing this summer. I mean, you made a huge decision there. Yes. Um, talk about, in life, entrepreneurship, as a, as a husband, as a father, as a business person, the idea of being willing to have vision and pivot and not just stay down a road that you know is leading to a place that's not going to be successful. Yeah. No, wow. That's, um, first, thank you for your honesty about authenticity first of all i think that's really important and i appreciate you being honest about that because i think it's important i think it's important for people to really who are listening to really think about that and you know i wish i could have gotten there even sooner and, and that's really cool for you to acknowledge that in terms of secondly in terms of where the world is at i mean and what's happening and what we've been through in the last three months it's it's the entire world is going through. And that's the first time that you could really point to something, at least in our generation, of the world, 7 billion people is having a shared experience right now. So we're all going through it. We're all feeling it on a deep, kind of intimate, personal level, on a family level, how that impacts us. And then as you spread it out amongst as your friends and social group level, and then into business and how we're going to kind of interact and, and, and work together you know, in the upcoming future, it's, it's an extraordinary, um, you know, process that we're going to have to kind of figure out to get through it. And, you know, it's, it's, it really is, is going to take a lot of adaptability 
a lot of patience, a lot of empathy. I really think empathy is such an important word right now um, that applies to both what's going on in terms of what we experienced in with the coronavirus and what's going on with um, the conversations about about race and and the criminal system and um, you know how we're all you know living together with inequality. Um, so we have to start to make these adjustments in major ways. And I think it's, it's something that I actually feel rather comfortable doing because from a business level, it's what I have to do all the time. Constantly, you know, kind of having to adapt, something happens on a production, can't do this, okay, great, let's quickly shift and go here. You know, it's like the day cost on our movies are $400,000 a day. There's no, there's, no, there's no time to, let me think about this. Let me take a, you know, let me take the night and let you get, get back to you tomorrow. It's like, we have to make that decision. We have to make it now because we have responsibility to our investors and studios and we have to be, uh, you know, fiscally smart and, and responsible. So in a way I have that in my DNA. I always have had it, but now it's really, it's a muscle that's been worked out. And so you, we, we want to discuss it in terms of on a business level, we got hit really hard in terms of, of, two movies that were in production and two of the biggest movies of, of my career and, and, and in Dwayne's career as well. Um, one is Jungle Cruise, which is a movie that we were one week away from finishing. Um, we had the final mix that we were about to, the movie was shot, it was edited, 2000 visual effects were about to be complete, were about to be you know kind of finished and we just were doing the final mix and then we we're gonna release it this summer in July. Um, we still have that one week left We'll have to figure out how to do that, but now we're starting to open up. We'll get back there and we'll do a socially distant mix with, uh, you know, with the director and the producers and, and Dwayne will be there and his team and we'll finish that movie. But we really took a strong position to move the movie an entire year to July, 2021. Um, I think that was really, I think that was really important. A lot of movies were shifting three months and six months. We really wanted to wait a year. The movie's so important to us. It's Dwayne and, and Emily Blunt and, Jack Whitehall, it, the movie is an event, it's an experience. We were tasked with the responsibility by the Walt Disney Company to adapt the first ride ever at Disneyland in 1955. Not only was it the first ride ever open in the opening of Disneyland, but it also was designed and created by Walt Disney himself. He created Jungle Cruise. He designed that ride, he was the first skipper. So we were shouldered with this incredible responsibility, which we were excited about. And I think we achieved it in the movie, but we could not have anything. I could not sleep with myself, you know, and kind of if the movie opened in a few months from now and people are like, Hey man, sorry about what's going on with the world and that people didn't go see your movie. That was something you like, while we talked about things that are out of our control, mm -hmm. this is something that while yes, the what's going on in the world and the pandemic, you know, and everything else is like, you couldn't predict and we can't fully manage, but what we can manage is we can go ahead and, and take the position that, hey, let's move this for a year. Let's get the world back on its feet. Let's get the theme parks back open. Let's get the cruise ships going and let's go on a global tour and let's go ahead and make sure that we can have Dwayne and Emily go everywhere around the country to make sure that they're bringing people in to see that film. So that that's one pivot that I wanted to you know discuss with you and answer your question on. It's a huge pivot, you guys. You're talking about a huge pivot so I'm on a, a shot with all the money invested in a movie like that to call a year wait is, is a major move. And so you may need to make tough calls like that too, guys, in your businesses and in, in your life and in your family right now. 
right? Some of you have been messaging me, what should I do with my, should I sell my house? Hey, maybe, you, I'm not, I don't know your personal financial situation, but if there's a major move you need to make, you gotta have the vision and the risk to take it. Okay, last question. Yeah. Last thing. Yeah. I, first off, I wanna say one thing. I know why you won, and it's obviously you're great at what you do, but you prove at the highest levels in life, good people can win. Yeah. And, and, and let me tell you something, Bo. You're right. good man. And it comes through. There's a, your spirit is infectious. Your goodness is contagious. And um, I'm really Thank glad. I'm, no, I'm really, I mean, I, mean, I, I I'm glad you're winning. I, you know this, your industry and industries I'm involved with, sometimes you're disappointed when you meet someone that you look up to and you admire that's been successful. Yes. And in your case, you're an even better man. And, um, and that's just wonderful to know. So I asked you the advice you'd give you. Yeah. I mean, I'd ask you the advice you'd give the young 18-year-old you. And then the last thing is everyone's got to sit in a conversation today with one of the most successful people in the world in his chosen industry, you. And, you know, if they could sit down at Starbucks for five minutes with you uh -huh. and say, Mr. Flynn, I'm sorry to bother you, but I've got a dream like you had a dream. Mm -hmm. And it's X, Y, or Z. And... I'm not exactly sure whether I can do it. I'm not exactly sure where to begin. What would your advice be to somebody who says, I've got a big dream and I want to make it happen? What would you say to them? I've got a few things to say to that. Um, one is I think those long horizon dreams are critical. And it's really important to have those, to have the vision of what you're going to do. But in terms of achieving them, I really think it's so important to go ahead and set short-term digestible and achievable goals i again i had to learn i had to learn that lesson the hard way and and i set these crazy lofty goals and i wasn't achieving them and i was feeling like a failure like i was feeling like really like like i wanted to just quit and move back to miami and and you know be a waiter and and you know just you know just kind of be a beach bum and that was it like really but once i started to change to short goals and I moved out to Los Angeles and I got a, a great opportunity to work for the biggest producer in the world, producer by the name of Scott Rudin, who's won every Oscar, Tony, brilliant, brilliant man, incredible man, to be his assistant, to be his sixth assistant in the totem pole, work my way up to be his first. And when I was his first, I set a goal. I set a goal to stay for six months, stay for six months, because he was very tough, very demanding. You're working 18 hours a day, and it was there was no no accepted from him. Just get it done, period. Achieved the first six months, said another six months. Said another six months, I stayed there for 18 months, one of his longest tenured assistants to this day. But I didn't say like I wanted to be run his company. Yeah. I didn't say that, because I would have failed, would not have achieved it. I want to be his assistant for six months. I think that's really important. And then when I left there, I said, okay, I'm ready. I want to make an indie feature and I want to make it within 12 months. That was in January of 95. I started shooting a movie, my first movie in May of 95 within six months. Mm -hmm. So I had achieved again, which are these, and then I wanted to get into a film festival and then I wanted to, and that was my number one goal after we achieved it. We get another six months later, we world premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, the biggest film festival in the world with Cam. That was 12 months in terms of making a movie and then have it world premiere at Sundance, <laughs> which is crazy. And that was all 25 years old. But the point being to this conversation at Starbucks is I didn't say I want to be running, you know, uh, 
Universal Studios. And I didn't say that I want to make $3 billion at the box office. I would have said that at 20 years old. I said, I want to be an assistant for six months and I want to be the best one he's ever had. I said, I want to make an independent feature film and I want it to world premiere at a film festival. And all of those things happen. And, and to, you know, what happens then is like, you build this momentum, you get this wind at your, at your back, you start to get some downhill speed. Yep. And I made another indie, another indie, another indie, five movies in a row at Sundance Film Festival. You know, it's like, and then the sixth one went to Cannes Film Festival. And then, then I wanted to make bigger movies and then I wanted to make studio films and I wanted to make blockbusters. It's like, though it took all those steps to get there in 25 years. And, you know, fortunately I'm still doing it and I love what I do and I'm so happy and I'm so blessed to be able to have this career. But like, it took those small steps of small measures and I, that's that's would be the story i would tell very very good guys this is like a massive this is one of these you don't listen to once you go all the way back and you you listen or watch this again um you owe me tequila by the way last thing yeah <laughs> so so the last thing by the way i i i, I, I gotta tell you i i for me this was this was one of those ones where like i don't i do a lot of shows i'm writing notes down as we're as we're going through this these are things for me as well Wow. But uh, tell them lastly, because we're going to get the promo in, because we want to do it. All right. Um, you and Dwayne and some others have tequila right now that I'm about to sample. What's the name of the tequila and where do they go about get to, You're about to get a shipment from me. It's called Terramana, um, which is, you know, it, it comes from mana, which is Dwayne's kind of always his mantra about mana, your spirit, your energy, and Terra is the earth. So it's energy of the earth. It's 100% organic. Uh, Dwayne and his partner, Danny Garcia, they partnered up with Ken Austin. They created this incredible tequila that Dwayne went down to Mexico. They created this incredible operation. They are making something really extraordinary. If you are a te tequila fan, I promise you, you will love this. Quality is so important. It's, it's really like also Dwayne, as the people's champ, wanted to make the people's tequila. So like it's priced really reasonably unfair. I'm very fortunate to have a small part of it. But um, I'm having a blast with it. Dwayne is having a great time. And what it has allowed us is, is I'm a huge believer, and I'll close with this, is I'm a big believer in the concept of toast. I love making toast, whether it's with your family, whether it's your friends, or whether it's at a kickoff event. I really believe that you need someone to stand up and raise a glass, you know, and say why we're all here, what we're trying to achieve, remind people how lucky we are to be in this room or be together or have our health. And it's something that it really gets overlooked. And I love it and all my friends and Dwayne and everyone that I work with makes fun of me because they know if they're at dinner with me, I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna raise a glass and make a toast. It's now a Terramana, but it could be with anything. But think about that concept. You know, you're sharing something all together. You're drinking something, you know, it's uniting you, bringing together, getting ready to go into the mission, whatever that is, or as a family, you're saying like, let's be grateful for the day and let's celebrate our love and the fact we can be together and have food on the table. It really connects to all those levels. And so to be part of something like this, I know it's a little bit out there and a little spiritual, but the Terramana part of it is like, is really cool because that's something that I've always kind of want to be part of. And it's an honor to be part of the team with Terramana. So I can't wait for you to taste it and let me know. And I know you're going to be honest with me, Ed, and tell me. What I will. I'll tell you, you know that. Hey, um, I wish you continued success. Thank you. And, and, uh, I, I, I enjoyed today so much. I, I, I took these notes here today and I'm going to tell you something, what I'm going to do. I have a break between calls. I want to review some of the stuff with my son upstairs. My son's getting ready to go off to college. I think they're just lessons fresh that you've just given that I'm going to be sharing immediately. And everybody else out there, I hope you share this show. This wow. is one of those you want to share with people you love that you believe in 
And to get access to somebody like Bo is not easy to do every day for you guys. And so I'm grateful you all got to meet Bo, experience him. And thank you, brother. I enjoyed it tremendously. Oh, man, what a blast. It's, what an honor to be here and a privilege. And uh, I cannot believe the level of research and your questions are so right on the target, man, right on the money. And I cannot wait to be with you in person. Yeah. And we're going to raise a glass of Termana and we're going to hang out. And, uh, and you're, you're going to really toast. Cool. And you're going right. to toast. I will. Get ready for it. All right. All right, everybody. Hey, reminder, every day, I, I kind of do a toast every day. We call it the Max Out Two Minute Drill. We gather every day, 7.30 Pacific, 10.30 Eastern on Instagram. Turn your notifications on. When I make a post, engage in the dialogue. Make a comment. Reply to other people's comments. Comment every day. If you do that, I pick winners every Sunday. They get trips with me. They get to ride on my plane sometimes. They come see me speak. They meet my guests. They get Max Out gear. It's just a wonderful way for me to connect with you. It's my version of Bo's Toast every single day on Instagram. So I'll see you guys there. God bless you and Max out. This is The Ed Milet Show.